of Proverbs, chapter 28, as you might have guessed. And last time we were together, we, uh, we really focused on a lot of different good principles, but I think the outstanding thing that come out of all of it was really the key to happiness. You know, uh, so many of God's people are just caught up in depression, they're caught up in not being happy, not being satisfied, not being fulfilled. Uh, you know, it used to be that uh, people would just, uh, God's people had something to live for and have, have something to be happy about, but it's, it's just a terrible time today. And we talked about and kind of walked it back through uh, what we'd have been looking at in the weeks before, uh, you know, the key to happiness and uh, uh, will be the joy of our fellowship with the Lord Jesus. We looked at First John chapter 1, what a great concept that was. And we, we, you know, we build our relationship of always loving him uh, no matter what. And we talked about Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, that we're to love the Lord like God with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our soul. And then we added the aspect about fearing God always, not being afraid of him that he's going to hurt us or what he can do to us, but rather uh, fear of a broken relationship or fellowship that will rob us of our joy. I, I told you as parents, and boy, this is so true, as you build into your kids the right way, the right things through the right process, you know, as they grow up to put the Word of God in their life in the right format and everything, uh, you know, you just need to realize that the key that you want to do is when they do something wrong, and all kids are going to do something wrong, uh, when they do something wrong and you have to deal with them, the thing that you want hurt more, sometimes you have to spank them, I get that, corporal punishment, you know, I get it, but the thing that you want to hurt them more than the whipping is the fact that fellowship, trust is broken between you two. That always wants to be the catalyst with your kids that will keep you, that they would rather not do something wrong and keep the fellowship with you as mom and dad than do something wrong and break that fellowship. And that really starts with us in our relationship with Christ. And then we, we, we train that into, into our children. You know, and I showed you how important it was to guard our attitude of heart, that we don't get a hardened heart and develop against the things of God, which you see so much today. And I showed you the prime example of that in the Bible was Pharaoh, king of Egypt. How that, uh, from Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, you find that, uh, that the Bible, we always take the verse that, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart and try to prove the point that Pharaoh didn't have a choice in it. But I showed you very clearly last week how that before he ever got to that point, he purposely hardened his own heart five times, the Bible tells us. And then God uh, just took the heart that he already had and used it. And another great principle, how that God will use everything in our life for his honor and glory. And uh, that's a great illustration and a principle for us. God always is going to get the honor and glory out of everything. Everything that God created is for his honor and glory. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. Everything that God does, he gets the honor and glory out. And the Bible talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, that he has vessels of honor and he has vessels of dishonor. And be, be not, don't be deceived. He will get the honor and glory out of somebody not doing what's right, just like he'll get the honor and glory out of somebody doing right. And then we talk about the man who was an oppressor, somebody oppressing somebody. And I showed you the two aspects, the roaring lion and the ranging bear. And, uh, you know, I, doctrinally, I told you that will be the Antichrist, and all of this is. And, uh, but in an inspirational for you and for me, there will be anybody who tries to oppress you, who tries to take advantage of you. And how that people who want what you have uh, will, through uh, covetousness, oppress you to try to get it. And, and all in all, with some great principles that we can add to our list of things that we're learning. And, you know, last week, as all of these things in Proverbs kind of go together, so I kind of use a little bridge to get into today. And today, we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 28, verses 17 through 20. And again, we'll move down through a few more verses here, and we'll glean some great practical principles of life uh, for our learning. So let's pick it up in reading here in verse 17. A man that doeth violence to the blood of any person shall flee to the pit. Let no man stay him. Whoso walketh uprightly shall be saved, but he that is perverse in his ways shall fall at once. He that tilleth his land shall have plenty of bread, but he that followeth after vain persons shall have uh, poverty enough. 
A faithful man uh, shall abound with the blessings, but he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. Josh Leach, would you stand up and over there ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me, pal? Love you and your family so much, Josh. Glad you're back. <coughs> now, <clears throat> you're going to see today that Proverbs, especially today, but we've seen it all through Proverbs. Proverbs is about contrast. He'll give you one thing that is positive, and in the same verse, he'll give you the alternative negative to it. And, you know, that's, a con- and I've said it many, many times, contrast is an incredible way to learn your Bible. Because the Bible's built on contrast. You don't go through four verses in Genesis 1 that it's light versus the darkness. That's a contrast. And the rest of your Bible is simply that. So you'll want to remember that as we look down through these things. And uh, along with that, the key to any book of the Bible is to, first of all, understand who the book's aimed at. You'll want to realize that what he's saying or trying to say and to whom he's trying to say it to. And once once you get that, then you set up a context that you can work from. And that's what we want to do today. I want to show you the contrast, but at the same time, I want to be able to show you fundamentally who we're speaking here, but in everything, we want to see the practical application to ourselves. So let's look at verse 17. A man that doeth violence to the blood of any person is what he starts out. Now, this will be basically a man who murders someone uh, based on, he says here, the term violence to the blood of any person. If you go back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, you'll find where this begins to be laid out where he says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, there's the violence, by man shall his blood be shed. And the key word is blood here because we know from Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So God looks at you killing somebody or somebody killing somebody as doing violence to them, to their blood. And of course, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a key part of understanding how this whole thing works. And historically, this will be under the law of Moses that, uh, you know, given to the nation of Israel in dealing with someone who, who murders someone. And, you know, for those of you who want to take it a little bit farther, all this will be laid out in Numbers chapter 35. Numbers chapter 35 is the great definitive chapter on murder, capital murder. In fact, uh, in that chapter, he lays out three ways or talks about three kinds of persons who were involved in taking somebody's life. And it's very important if you're going to understand how the whole thing works. First of all, he talks about a manslayer. And then he'll talk about manslaughter. We use that term today. Uh, and uh, And then he talks about premeditated murder. So there's three types of of taking somebody's life here uh, that he defines for us in Numbers chapter 35 and in other places in the Bible too. You know, in history, and even today too, there's a lot of religions who think uh, that under any circumstances that it's wrong to take somebody's life. And of course, uh, you know, uh, we have a, a whole crowd of people today across this world, really, who are now against capital punishment. And in America, you know, um, for a while, anyhow, most of the states did not practice capital punishment. It was life in prison. Now some of the states are coming back that they're executing them, but it's way on a slow basis, you know. And uh, it's a thing where uh, across the world, you'll find that most nations, in European nations, anyhow, have all done away with capital punishment. Uh, and of course, uh, they uh, you know they think that it's, it's uh, immoral you know that you would would kill somebody and that in a modern day society would not take the life of somebody who took the life of somebody else. And of course, all of that comes from the fact that the farther we get from the Bible, Genesis nine six talked about the fact that if anybody sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. In fact, capital punishment is not only taught in the Old Testament, it's also taught in the New Testament. And it is a, it is a doctrine today that, that should be followed, but and we'll talk about it a little bit later on, but it is not followed. And then you have those who um, what we would classify as conscientious objectors. And, you know, they, we have a society full of people who 
um, you know, that they think that capital punishment for a man who's committed some terrible, horrible crime, uh, he shouldn't be killed. He ought to be, you know, uh, put in prison forever. And uh, then you have people who uh, think that it's immoral to go to war. Uh, that if you go to war, that my religion says that I, thou shalt not kill, so therefore going to war and killing somebody violates my b- spiritual principles, so therefore I'm not going to fight and go to war. I'm a conscientious objector. Uh, two great ironic uh, situations in that is one that that I'm sure everybody knows is uh, back in uh, World War One in 1917, you had a guy by the name of Alvin York, and Alvin York uh, was the most decorated soldier in World War One, and uh, he uh, he was a conscientious objector. Uh, if you study his life, and there's a great movie out on it with Gary Cooper playing his part, simply called Sergeant York. Uh, it's, it's a great movie. And the first part of his life, he was born in the latter parts of the uh, 1800s. He was just a drunken bum. I mean, he, mountain guy, you know, in the Cumberland Gap Mountain there in the uh, Pall Mall, Tennessee, moonshiners, uh, just wild stuff. And uh, in, in 1915, he went to a revival service and got saved. And you got to remember that back then in, those, in that time period in the mountains, anyhow, they weren't all doctorally correct. But it seems to be, from what I could find in, in researching him, that he actually truly got saved. Certainly changed his life. I mean, uh, he became a Sunday school teacher. He became an elder in the church. He began to, you know, teach people the Bible. and completely turned his life around. It, it's all laid out in the movie, and you got to watch it. It's, it's worth seeing it. He was a tremendous crack shot. I mean, he could hit anything. I mean, because he's raised in the mountains, you know, and they all did that. But anyway, 1917, World War I broke out, and he was drafted. And uh, he told them that he was not going to pick up a gun, he's not going to kill anybody. And, uh, you know, it was a thing where he went through his own struggles, and his commanding officer, you know, uh, he was such a good shot, I mean, that he, they wanted him to be promoted to corporal to teach the other guys how to shoot. But he himself said he'd teach them, but he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't kill anybody himself. Well, he went back home, you know, to give him a three-week leave. And, in fact, his commanding officer told him, you know, after three weeks, if you don't want to feel that any different about it, he gave him a book on American history uh, and how that we've had to fight for our freedoms or somebody would take it away. And he said, at the end of that two-week leave, if you still feel the way you are, I'll sign your release and put you out of the Army. Well, he, he went home and got in his Bible and found out that, uh, you know, it was, it, he needed to defend his country. So in World War I, he's in the Battle of the Argonne, which is a terrible, bloody battle. His platoon is sent up to take out some machine gun nests, and they get trapped. And everybody, all his NCOs were shot, half his guys were killed, and Alvin York single-handedly killed uh, at least 35 German soldiers. He captured single-handedly 152, knocked out uh, 18 machine gun nests. I mean, incredible what he did. When somebody asked him, when his commanding officer after it asked him, why did you do what you did when you were so opposed to war and killing people, his answer was an amazing answer. He said, you know, he says, I was out there and those machine guns were killing hundreds and hundreds of people. And he said, I'm against killing now just like I was before, but them guns were killing hundreds and hundreds of people. And the only way I could stop the killing was to stop those guns. And it was an amazing statement. Obviously, he won the... Uh, the highest French uh, declared the Cronk a medal. He won uh, uh, European, but he was also awarded the Medal of Honor. And, uh, you know, here's a guy who wound up starting with a conscientious objector, but wound up, you know, just incredible feat. One that we're probably more familiar with, just came out in a movie a couple of years ago, was uh, Desmond Dross who uh, on Guadalcanal, um, you know, saved 75, uh, uh, Okinawa, saved 75 men. Uh, he was a medic. And again, he was a seven-day Adventist who they were against war. And he uh, would not fight, would not pick up a weapon. They try, almost tried to court-martial him. And uh, yet he, uh, a general stepped in at the last and said that he had a right to do that. So they let him be a medic. It wasn't that he didn't want to go to war. He just didn't want to kill anybody. He wanted to go as a medic. So they led him to be a medic, and on Okinawa, which was one of the bloodiest battles of World War II in the Pacific, I mean, uh, it was incredible bloody. 
they were trapped on a ridge, and he actually lowered. Uh, they had to pull back, and he stayed up there with all these wounded. Well, the Japanese were all over the place, and he lowered 75 men down one at a time uh, to be saved. And he was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for that. And it's a thing where that's ironic because both of these guys were conscientious objectors that thought when the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, that it pertained across the board to, to everything and, and everybody. And, of course, that's not true. You know, the Bible's a great book to interpret itself. And many times we fail to let the Bible interpret itself and our church, our religion, or just what we want to believe uh, interprets it for us. And, you know, two great verses that really explain what Jesus is saying. In, Ma- in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, when he's given the Ten Commandments, he actually says, Thou shalt not kill. And that's where Alvin York got his doctrine, and that's where Desmond Ross got his. And uh, they just took that at face value that he's talking about all killing. And, of course, evidently they missed Sunday school when they talked about Numbers chapter 35. Uh, But when you go to Matthew chapter 19, uh, verse 18, uh, you'll find how that uh, uh, the Bible defines itself. Jesus himself here is talking to a young guy. And uh, the guy says, uh, I've kept the law. He, Jesus tells him to keep the, uh, the law. And Jesus says, he says, which one? And Jesus says to him, he quotes Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, that says, thou shalt not kill. But in Matthew 19, 18, Jesus defines that for us. And he says, thou shalt do no murder. You see how the Bible works? You don't just read back there in Exodus chapter 20 and decide that that means across the board. First of all, you've got to go get a context for that, which is Numbers chapter 35. And then if you get a secondary opinion on it, which is always good, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But Jesus is certainly a great secondary opinion. He took the verse over there in Exodus 20 verse 13 that says, Thou shalt not kill. And when he quoted into the New Testament to this young guy, he told you exactly and defined what he meant by thou shalt not kill. He says, Thou shalt do no murder which shows you that in war, killing people is not murder. Bible talks about you being a manslayer. Killing somebody in war is not murder. And there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about that here when we just get into it a little bit farther. So when he says, thou shalt not kill, he's talking about capital premeditated murder. Bible makes it clear in the book of Numbers 35 there that it's somebody that you have enmity against. That's a fixed-rooted hatred for somebody, as defined in Numbers chapter 35, verses 16 through 30. Deuteronomy 19.11 takes it a little bit farther and talks about that a man who commits murder is someone who hates somebody premeditated in their heart. When you're in war, you don't even know the guy you're fighting. You can't hate him. You may hate his country. You may hate what he stands for, but you can't hate him. You don't even know the guy. So it's a thing where uh, this is, uh, you know, this verse 17 is a man who does violence against the blood of somebody else by being a premeditated murderer and hating him because of hatred in his heart. And the last part of verse 17 says, he shall flee to the pit. Let no man stay him. Now, the word stay there is an old, old English word. It means to stop. So he's basically saying, uh, he shall flee to the pit. Let no man stop him. And the key word there is to stay. That's because in Numbers chapter 35, verse 31, there's to be no satisfaction taken for a murderer that, that premeditatedly kills somebody. There's no reprieve. There's no, there's, no, there's no sacrifice that he can bring. It's only death. There'll be no stay of execution. Uh, the law is very clear that if you hatred in your heart and enmity towards somebody, that you kill them premeditated, not accidentally like manslaughter. I mean, it goes through the whole thing. If you're out there in the woods someplace and you're cutting down a tree and your axe head flies off and hits somebody, that's not murder. But if you wait for that person like Cain did Abel, that's murder, premeditated. And so he has to be killed. And, of course, the only example of this, which is a great example, is, is David. David uh, committed two offenses by which there is no sacrifice for, that the only, the only thing is death, but yet God gave him the sure mercies of David which is an incredible picture of our New Testament eternal security in Christ in a picture in the Old Testament long before it ever showed up. And, of course, that in itself is a great study. Bible says that he has to be killed. And in Numbers chapter 35, verse 33, it says that when he isn't killed, 
then the land suffers for the blood. Uh, and it all comes back to the blood. This is why, putting your Bible together, this is why back in Genesis 4 when Cain killed Abel, Jesus or God said, your blood is blood cries to me from the ground. And people say, what does that mean? Numbers chapter 35, verse 33. Uh, his blood shed in the ground. And so, you know, it's a thing where capital punishment today, as I said, uh, is, is a New Testament doctrine. It's an Old Testament doctrine. Even though the farther we get from the Bible, um, the, the, we don't do it anymore. From 1700 to what? 1950, 1960. I mean, uh, capital punishment was the standard for premeditated murder and other things that this country, you know, uh, equated with that. You know, it was the thing where back in the day, it was hanging. They hung somebody. Uh, they would shoot somebody. You know, back in the 20s, there was the electric chair, uh, which would be a terrible way to go. Uh, then they come up with the gas chamber, which was a little more, you know, humane as far as being fried and old sparky, but it's a thing where it still, it, it still kills you. Now, they did away with all of that, and as our society got farther away from the Bible, the real victims get treated like the criminals, and the criminals get treated like the victims, now your guy can go out and, and kill, what, five or ten young girls that are uh, unsuspecting, you know, and, and dismember them and do all kinds of terrible things to them. And, uh, you know, we, we, you know, they can be alive when they're being tortured and going through all of that stuff. And when we finally catch the guy, we finally convict the guy and is sure that he did it, then we worry about putting him to death that he doesn't suffer when the victims that he killed and mutilated suffered horrendously, but we want to make sure that he does not suffer. So now we're worried about, you know, lethal injection, that, you know, it may cause him undue harm uh, as he's passing from this life to the other. I hope it really does. It really does. I hope it does. I mean, uh, it's one of those things where, but that's where our society is. I think the French had it the best way with, with a guillotine. That's a good way to get it. Or burning at the stake, was, it would be good, too. Somebody asked me one time if, you know, if I would going to have to be executed, would I rather have a, you know, get, a, get my head cut off or get burned at the stake? And I said, well, easy, that's easy. Burn at the stake. And they say, why is that? And I said, because a hot steak's better than a cold chop any day. Put <laughs> that for a while. You get it. Now, doctrinally, all of this will deal with the Antichrist. Our hidden man of a couple of weeks ago, in the tribulation, he wages war with the nation of Israel and kills them down to a small remnant. And you'll find this in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. When he's finally destroyed at the second coming of Christ, this will be Revelation chapter 20, uh, verses 1, 2, and 3. Also, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 19, and Isaiah 14, 15. You'll find there, this is where he goes down to the pit. And it says in uh, Revelation 20, 1, 2, and 3, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the old dragon, that old serpent, which is called the devil and Satan, and bound him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. So that's doctrinally what the, refer what the reference is to. But as we know... Everything in here, even though it may be written, as I said, you've got to figure out who it's written to, maybe historically to Israel, doctrinally in the future, there's always a practical application to it. And, you know, I, I, we don't want to miss that because the other stuff's important, but what really is important is you getting what it means to you. And it will be a reference to, uh, inspirationally, to 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. And the New Testament application will simply be what that verse says, whosoever hated his brother is a murderer. You know, in the New Testament, you don't have to actually kill somebody to be a murderer. You can just hate somebody in your heart. If you hate another Christian, if you hate another brother, another sister in Christ, you know, uh, you, the Bible says that uh, unless you fall under the category of the, uh, which most would not, uh, that you're a murderer. It's just that simple. And the Bible is clear. You know, we think that it's the action that we do that God judges. And that's never the case. That's such a limited view of God. It's never the action that God judges. It's the attitude of heart that produced that action. That's the key. You sign it in the difference between the word fornication and adultery. Everybody says, well, what is the difference between the two? It's easy. Fornication is the act, but Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 tells you that adultery is the attitude of the heart. And so you've got to see both of them and how they, they, they work through. And it's the same way when you look at, at anything in our life. 
God doesn't come down and judge the action. He comes down and judges the attitude of heart that produced the action. You can say you've forgiven somebody, but when you really haven't, that's what God looks at, not your false pretense that you put out for everybody else's benefit. He looks at our heart. He looks and sees what we really do in our heart that produces the action. And when it comes to God's definition of murder, it's, it's premeditated based on our hatred or the enmity, a rooted hatred in our heart for somebody or something. So based on that, and you don't have to be a Christian very long to find this thing unfolding itself. And so based on that, most of God's people actually are in the same category with Charles Manson. They're in the same category with, uh, you know, Dillinger or Alvin Karpus or Pretty Boy Floyd or Hannibal Lecter, Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees. They're, They're all in the same boat. You hate somebody in your heart and the Bible says you're a murderer. And the same attitude of heart that God will judge for that that will keep anybody from getting God's forgiveness in their own life. You know, and the key is that you too will fall into a pit. It's just a different pit than an unsaved person. Look at Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17. Here's our pit. Here's our pit. It says in verse 17 of chapter 38 of Isaiah, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the, here it comes, pit of corruption. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. You see, when you get right with God, when you make something right with somebody from God, when you don't hold the grudge, when you don't hold back, when you don't keep the forgiveness that needs to be biblically done the way it needs to be done, when you do those things, then God takes the sins and puts them behind your back. But when you don't do those things, it's a pit of corruption. Things only get worse. You don't get better. You're not willing to forgive somebody else for what they did. Good luck trying to get yourself forgiven. And what happens, the longer we don't forgive and we keep that enmity in our heart, the harder your heart gets. And the love of God goes out of it. We looked at it last week in Job chapter 9 verse 4. Who has hardened his heart against him and and, and prospered? You won't. You won't. Now I say that knowing all too well that hatred is is a, it's like anger. It's a God-given emotion. And I wouldn't stand up here for a moment and tell you that God doesn't hate. He certainly does. But the difference between his hatred and our hatred in Psalm 139 verses 22 through 27 is the fact that God hates with a perfect hatred. That's the difference. And I've never met, I've never met very few many of God's people that ever hates with a perfect hatred. And boy, that's a study into itself. And you'll never understand the concept of righteous indignation until you understand that concept that God has, hating with a perfect hatred. And of course, uh, a perfect hatred has to come back to a whole biblical concept that God's people have no understanding of. Most of God's people go through a whole life with grudges against people that just takes them completely out of being really used of God to their full potential. And it's something that time and time again, I've seen it all my ministry. You get churches where they, you get deacons and you get you, even pastors, pastors' wives. You get people in the church or in places of leadership. They get so isolated from the Word of God and its truth. And they're so protect what they have that they look at everybody out there as somebody that's trying to take what they have. And they, 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 somebody will do them wrong, and instead of forgiving them and, 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 you know, and, and, and making it right and forgetting it. Like I said last week, God has the ability. Somebody asked a question on the little, I wasn't here Thursday night, but I read the, the little things there as they were going on. Somebody asked a question, and I mentioned that if you can forgive, you ought to be able to forget. And they asked the question, how in the world can somebody forget? That is a great question. And the answer to that is found in the relationship you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to get into it this morning, but I'm telling you right now, God's people can not only not forgive, they can't forget. They carry it around for the rest of their lives. And they actually think that that does not have some kind of effect on what they do for the Lord. It does. You know, I don't, I don't carry a grudge more than 30 seconds. 
I don't care what you ever did to me or what you did or what you didn't do or what you think about me. And let me tell you something. God's been too good to me to carry anything around against anybody. I have no reason on this planet to have a problem with anybody and whatever you do to me, for me, against me, or whatever the case may be. Because I got 19 years of my life before I got saved. And in all those years afterwards where I did some of the stupidest, god-awfulest things you ever saw in your life. And you know what? God forgave me. Who am I not to forgive you? That's just the way it is. Then the last part of verse 17, let no man stay him. That's stop him or help him. You see, when a child of God gets so far down that they're headed to the pit of corruption, uh, I mean, in the people ministry, we talk about this all the time. You know, the people we want to help, there's people that we try to help. But you know as well as I do, if you've been in this business uh, very long at all, that there's some people that you cannot help. There are some people who just are going to do it their way. They're never going to, you try to help them and then they get an attitude toward you. When they're, when they're really struggling, the church is great. When they get on their feet, the church is bad. We've, we've all dealt with it. Now, when a person gets to that point where they're so unthankful for what God has done and they're so selfish about themselves and all that they do, and they just they have problems with everything and everybody, the only thing you can do is get out of their way. You can't fix them. When you harden your heart to the things of God and develop a hatred for people, other Christians, or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. It comes down to the place where, you know, you're okay to take God's forgiveness for you, but you're not willing to extend it to somebody else. And we wind up in God's view. The longer you go, the longer you play with that, the longer you let that stir in your heart and your soul, pretty soon you get a hardened heart toward everything that God does. And then you start to justify it. You start to rationalize it because you don't want to deal with it. And at that point in your life, I'm telling you, there ain't no going to preaching going to help you. There's no counseling that's going to change you. There's no rebuke. There's no warning. There's no admonition that's going to be of any value to you. No, God is going to have to come down and deal with you one-on-one. And that's why the Bible, the verse says, let no man stay him. Don't let them stop him. Sometimes you just got to get out of the way and let God deal with it. I mean, you really do. And it's a thing where, you know, when somebody goes into, please don't take this wrong because I'm not talking about anybody here. But, you know, there are some times that I, you know, I I go to the hospital to see somebody that's that's really sick or they have been in a car wreck or they did this and they did that. And I'll get a phone call, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. I'll get a phone call sometime and say, hey, so-and-so's in the hospital. Can you go up and see him? Now, can I be honest? I don't want to go. I'll go, but I don't want to go. And I'll tell you why I don't want to go. Because I have a hard time going into a hospital room when I know the person in there is in there because they're not doing right with God. And they have, they've completely forsaken God and everything about God. And I'm supposed to go in there now and pretend that God is going to guide the doctors through this. I'm supposed to go in there and pretend that every, I, what I want to do is go in and say, have you learned the lesson yet? Have you got the message yet? I mean, you haven't been in church for how long? You haven't been in your Bible forever. You're running with the world. You're doing all the things out there. And now here you are, flat on your back. I just got one question. Did you, did you pick up the phone when God called? You can't do that. I'd like to. That's what you need to do. Maybe I'm a failure at it. Maybe I just got to go in and kick the door down and shoot everybody to the ground. I can't. I, I, don't, I, I know how that would be accepted. I, I would be crucified. I didn't have the sweet spirit of Christ. I wasn't sympathetic. Well, you know what? I'll tell you what. There comes a point in all of our lives when we don't do what's right, that you can go so far and go so far, and then you're headed for that pit of corruption, and the Bible clearly says, get out of the way. Now, I'll go in there, and I'll do my duty. I'll hold their hand. I'll pray. Oh, God, we thank you for so-and-so. They're so special. Uh, the, and the devil really enjoys their company. And, you know, and, and I'll, I'll go through the whole thing. But in my heart, I, I feel like the biggest phony on the planet. Because I can't play games like that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just, you know, I, I, I've done funerals where I, afterwards I could have just kicked myself in the rear end. 
because it's a thing where you get up there and you, you try, everybody knows you're lying. You say, well, so-and-so, you know, he was saved and he loved the Lord and his buddies are out there saying, yeah, he was saved and loved the Lord, all right. We were just drinking, smoking dope last week. And here I am. Oh, praise the Lord. You know, he's in heaven today. Yeah, and they're saying, heaven, yeah, him and, him and God are drinking out of the same bottle. I know how it goes. But I'm just telling you, when it comes to a point in some people's lives when you harden your heart to God and you're not going to do anything and you're not going to fix what's wrong and you need to be fixed, you're headed for the, that pit of corruption. You'll go to heaven. But brother, your whole world will be miserable and your whole life you'll have just wasted what God wanted to do with you. All because we get that hardened attitude of heart. Now look at verse 18, going back to Proverbs here. And this is, you know, many of God's people are here today. Verse 18, whoso walketh uprightly shall be saved. Now here's a good contrast. Verses, but he that is perverse in his ways shall fall at once. Now, historically, the upright will be somebody walking under the law, the law of Moses. We know that. And he's being saved from going into the pit, like the verse is talking about in the context. Inspirationally, it's for you and for me in the New Testament, the principles that we are to follow that are very clear. And when we walk upright through the principles of the Word of God, and then God takes our sins and puts it behind our backs, we never have to deal with it, and the pit we get saved from will be the pit of corruption that will so destroy so many of God's people. And the key here, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, is to walk uprightly. First John chapter 1, verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. God's Son cleanses us from all in sin. That's for me and you, walking uprightly. In the Old Testament, it's Psalms chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth the way of sinners, nor stood in the seat of the scornful. But his delight shall be in the law of the law, and in this law shall he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the river to water that bringeth forth his fruit in the season. That's the Old Testament principle. In either case, Old Testament and New Testament, the key is to walk uprightly. And the Old Testament law for the Jew and the principles of the Word of God for you and for me. Then last part of verse 18. But he that is perverse in his ways shall fall at once. Now, historically, again, this will be how God's judgment uh, was swift under the Old Testament law. When a man, whoever, whatever, woman, child, uh, got into problems, they were brought before the elders and they didn't let it wait. They dealt with it severely if needed to, but they dealt with it very quickly. And, uh, you know, doctrinally, this will be the Antichrist and his crowd who gets his quick judgment at the second coming of Christ. And we all know that. But inspirationally, here's another great truth. It shows that fellowship with God. We have such a delusion about our relationship with God. It tells us that fellowship with God is broken at once when we sin against God. We get the idea that it's a gradual thing, you know. I mean, it takes nine sins before fellowship gets halfway broken and another nine before it gets totally broken. No, 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 no. Bible says that all unrighteousness is sin. It, it's a thing where there's not big sins and little sins. Let me tell you something. If the speed limit is 55 miles an hour and you're doing 70 in it, that's sin against God out of Romans chapter 12. It doesn't matter. We, we like to think that we like to set our own standards for what sin is. Now, I'm not saying that I, I haven't, I'll tell you right now, I've never went 75 into 55. It's more like 85 into 55. But I know that it's wrong, and those are the kind of things that may be stupid to you, may be silly to you, but they're a reality check for me. Because you know what? That may mean nothing to you, but it's just a stepping stone to other things that pretty soon won't mean anything to you. I mean, when are you going to, when are you going to decide what is sin and what is not? I hope you don't leave that to your own flesh to figure out. Well, we got homosexuals today that doesn't think that's wrong. You know why? Because somebody left it to their discretion. There has to be an absolute standard that we come back to, and it's the Bible. And 75 and a 55 is sin. It doesn't mean you don't do it. Well, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but when you do it, you confess it. Amen. 
I mean, I know. The rationalization is, well, then why did they put a speedometer in my car that goes 120? I get it. I get it. And it's a thing where, I'm just telling you, it's a thing where it's, it's not a gradual thing. It's like it's lying or stealing. It's, not, it's, it's all the same. To God, all unrighteous is a sin, 1 John 5, 17. Sin is sin, and it breaks our fellowship at once. God consciousness, being aware of the things of God in your life, is what brings your attention to those little things. Because it's the little things that if you don't fix will lead to the big things. Now, under the New Testament, under grace, not law, I get it. And this is where we get delusional. In the Old Testament, he came down and whacked them right on the spot in many cases. In the church age, under grace, you may go 5, 10, 15, 20 years without God ever coming down and really taking a hand to you. I mean, your, your life will be a dead-end street, obviously, and God will try to get your attention. But, you know, it's a thing where in the Old Testament, God came down and killed them. If God came down and killed everybody in the New Testament, didn't do it right, there wouldn't be anybody left. And because of that, and we're so stupid with the Word of God, we think that God doesn't care. We think that, oh, that's okay. Though He does care, and you spend all of that time out of fellowship and, and keep uh, pounding up your sin and refusing to make it right and get right with things in your life or people or whatever, and it's just a matter of time that you wind up in that pit of corruption. Last week I showed you in Deuteronomy 29 verses 19 through 21 how God will separate a man unto his evil. He'll take everything out of his life except the evil in his life. And you do not want that in your world. The last thing you want in anybody Christian life is for God to take his hand off of you. Even in the hand of chastisement. When God says stand back, don't stay, let him go, we're in trouble. It's all because we hardened our heart and wouldn't do in any given situation what the Bible says we should do. And we go through like Deuteronomy last week where it says, I have peace in the imagination of my heart. I have peace. Oh, there's nothing wrong with me. And yet if you take the way you're living and the way you're dealing with people and put it up against the Word of God, you'd see it real quickly. And your heart got hardened and it failed you. I think in the medical world we call it heart failure. When like Pharaoh, you had over and over again a chance to do what God told you to do. And God doesn't come down and whack us because he knows there's a day coming in the judgment seat of Christ where God is going to take care of it and God is going to lay it out. We're going to have to deal with it. Look at verse 19. He that telleth the land shall have plenty of bread, but he that followeth after vain persons shall have poverty enough. Now notice here, it's, it's just not, this is not talking about obviously just raising crops, as it seems. Because you don't till the ground as a farmer and produce a loaf of bread. Corn, yes, wheat, yes, lettuce, yes, tomatoes, beans, yes, but not a loaf of bread. Now we know from the Bible that the bread here will be a type of the Word of God. And we know also that the Word of God is likened to seed. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, 23, we were told that we were saved by, by, by incorruptible seed, not corruptible, which is the Word of God. And here's how these sayings is how it works. After, and after salvation, when God plants the seed in your heart at the time of salvation, it's you and me responsibility to till that ground, to cultivate that ground where the seed was planted. And in time, it'll bring not only fruit, but you'll learn your Bible and you'll have plenty of bread. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 23, you have the famous parable of the sower, where somebody went forth sowing seeds, and the seed is the Word of God. And the seed fell into men's hearts. The Bible says that some of the seeds obviously fell by the wayside, and the birds came down and ate them up. Some of them fell into stony places of a man's heart, where he wouldn't do anything with it. Some got into a man's heart and the thorns and the thistles, the sins of this world choked them. But the Bible says that other seed, the word of God, putting in man's heart, fell on good ground and bare forth fruit, some a hundred, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. 
and you and me putting out the word of God in men's hearts like that parable says and it gets into their hearts and when it lands on you see the reason why you're here today and you love the Bible and you love God and God is using you is because there was a time in your life when God sowed the seed of the word of God in your heart and it found good ground and it just didn't grow itself no crop does. You've got to have the right amount of rain, the right amount of sun, the right amount of seasons. And what you did is you took that seed in your heart and you tilled the ground. You cultivated it. And the question is simple this morning. What do you got growing in your heart this morning? That's the question. Bible says the world is the field. And we sow the seed, the word of God, in the field. What are you going to do this afternoon? John chapter 4, verse 35 says, He looked out and the fields were white unto harvest. You see, the Bible starts out in a garden, the Garden of Eden, and in time, which is a literal garden, winds up in the church age of being a spiritual garden that you sow the seed in your heart. And where Adam and Eve would have produced the fruit physically back there, we produce it spiritually. Kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of God, but it all comes back to the seed that's in your heart this morning. Matthew chapter 20 is a great study and a great story. That's a picture of the church age in type how, on a 12-hour day where the Bible says that God sends out labors into the, into the vineyard of his field. And he starts at 6 o'clock in the morning and he goes to the 3rd hour and the 6th hour and the ninth hour and the 11th hour. And then at 6 o'clock he comes back and he brings those labors in. And what they're doing through that whole day, a picture of the church age, they're sowing seed in the hearts of men. This church is not just interested in helping you sow the seed. We're helping you cultivate it after it gets sowed. We want to make you, give you the best shot to be everything that God wants you to be. Look at the last part of verse 19. Here's the contrast. But he that follow after a vain person shall have poverty enough. Simply when you follow the wrong crowd, you wind up out of fellowship with God, no joy in your life, no real happiness, a hardened heart, no bread, and a pit of corruption. Vain persons have been defined many times in the book of Proverbs as simply a person who is all about themselves, wants nothing to do with God. They're laid out in the book of Ecclesiastes and vanity all through the book, and they care nothing for the things of God. They're stubborn, they're unteachable, hardened heart, Doctrinally, again, it's the Antichrist. Inspiration, historically, it's Israel. Inspirationally, it's anybody out of fellowship with God in the church age. Now look at verse 20. A faithful man shall abound with blessings, but he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. Another contrast. I, I, I can't even begin to tell you the blessings of God that will be in your life when you have complete fellowship with him. Uh, it, it's, it's a simple thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a something that I have preached all of my ministry. I believe it with all of my heart. And it is the fact, the simple concept, that God blesses faithfulness. There's no one thing that you can do that have blessings of God in it more than that one aspect, being faithful to him. I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's just unbelievable. And uh, my whole life has just been to watch that so true. That no matter what comes in your life, there'll be some hard times come. There'll be some bad, dark times. There'll be some things that come into your life that you have to deal with. Some of it by your own doing, others just because of, of, of the world that we live in. But I'm going to tell you something. Through every darkness, through everything you'll struggle with, you'll find the blessings of God right alongside of it. And it's just simply which one you're going to focus on. You're going to whine and complain about what you're going through. Are you going to look for the blessings of God and what God is doing through it? Now, maybe because of where you're at, God isn't doing anything. That's all you got. I get it. But I'm telling you, I can't even begin to tell you how the blessings of God will be there for you in your life and your family, your kids, that you can go through life in this world. And I've had a lot of parents come over the years tell me, you know, I don't even know if we want to have kids and bring them into the world that we live in. And I get that. I understand that. But that's not the way God would have it to be. Let me tell you something. The world, as bad as it may seem, is no different than it's ever been. And you know what? It doesn't matter how bad the world gets. And maybe it is getting worse. But you know what? The principles of the Word of God are the same. The world doesn't get to a place and then the principles cancel out. They're still the same promises back now that they were back then. 
You can still raise a family and do what's right with them. See, the problem is not the world. The problem is the parents. The problem is the people that are in charge that doesn't want to do what the Word of God says. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. There's one little verse that I've kept in my heart and my ministry that I can literally say if, if somebody would say, if I have any success at all, it would be this based on this one verse. Excuse me, I'm going to have to blow my nose here a minute. I want to shut the mic off for a minute, just for a minute. Okay, I'm back on. Oh, one more time. It's coming quick. No, I'm just kidding. It's found in Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. And I've never forgotten it. I, I built my whole ministry on this verse. I saw it many, many, many years ago, and I believe it with all my heart. You know what he says? He says, if you'll be faithful in the little things, I'll make you ruler over many things. And that is such a great principle. I can look back at this church, and maybe you can't see it, and I can't expect you to. You, you don't see it from my perspective. You're not the pastor. There's many people that all they see in any church is what's wrong with it. They don't see the people that get saved. They don't understand what God does. They don't see the whole big picture. I get that. I understand that. That's just the way it goes. But for me, it's been nothing more than building and being faithful in the little things. And in time, God gives you major things. I've got a great example that I want to give you this. And I've not really said anything about this because it just has come together really in the last couple of weeks. And I wasn't sure where it was all going to go. You know, we've been down at Restart now for, oh, I don't know, eight or nine years probably. Something like that. And, you know, and it was a thing where, to me, I was, there's no question in my mind that God opened that door. We got shut out of a mission, and I remember John Busquet and I went down to, to look at a place, and we just looked up there and saw the sign, restart. We went up and talked to the people up there, told them what we wanted to do, and we quit going down to the mission like we used to because we had too many people, and, you know, we were looking for people that wanted to be involved, so we did the restart, plus we did the... Uh, the street ministry, you know, and people were out there, still out there, going out today. And we'll probably feed five, 600 people. And I'll drive up and down and watch you guys witnessing to them, watch you giving out tracts. I'll watch you young guys and gals that are young Christians getting your feet wet out there and doing it. Watch you old guys out there that hold the line down at the, down at the um, uh, um, library and down at the mission place down there and, and Will's team out on the street and down by the river, you know, doing that thing with Darren and all that. And, you know, it's, it, you know, you go through that week after week after week. And you don't, a lot of God's people, if they don't see results pretty quick, they're out. There's a lot of God's people that way. I've had them all my ministry, you know. They want something instantaneous. And, and I've, never, I've never felt that way. I always thought that if God gave it to us, and I'm sure he did, then just stay the course. Be faithful over the little things and let God what he does. Well, I say all that to say this. I've been down there almost nine years and been faithful. I had a call about six months ago from a guy who was the overall chaplain down at the Jackson County Jail. And uh, he's a good guy. I've known him for a long time. And uh, he took over it here this last year or so, and he, he got all the other Bibles out. He's a King James man. And he, 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 he works with all these organizations, and he's connected with Restart, uh, you know, helping them guys find a place and everything. And so Restart was telling him about our church. And, and so he calls me on the phone, and he says, hey, he says, uh, uh, you know, Restart is telling me that you guys were you know, been working down there. And he said, Bob, I said, I didn't know all that. And he said, uh, I've known you for a long time. And he said, they tell me about your street ministry and all the people that you're working with down there. And he says, look, he says, I'm in tremendous need at the Jackson County Jail. He says, I, I'm over the whole program. And he says, I, I would, I'm asking you if, if you will give me some guys that, and I want them out of the street ministry. I want guys who have been working with these people that have it, because that's, Basically, the ones that you're working with today and this afternoon will be the ones you'll see in jail next week. And he says, I really, and we talked about it, and I said, okay, I said, I'll give you eight guys. Let's start with eight guys. And those eight guys, you know, had to go down. They had to get FBI background checks. They got fingerprinted. They got everything, and they're all set to go. And uh, what's going to happen is, is that uh, in time, they will have 24-hour access to the jail. They'll be able to go in, pull anybody out of whatever pod they want to, witness to them. But starting out, we're gonna, they're going to do a church service. And they're supposed to do it this morning, but there was a glitch with the computer. But um, two guys going down at a time. And in time, it will open up to the point where 
um, will be doing just about everything because this guy has nobody to really help him. Uh, that he's, he knows that from what we did at Restart and what they said, where we're at, and not the guys and the people he wants. Now, I'll just tell you this. It's only going to be a short hop, skip, and a jump. He's already talking. It's already in the works about starting a women's ministry down there. I'm going down and preaching to the women. It's just going to take some time. My, my whole point in saying all that is, and I haven't said anything about it because, you know, I just wanted to see how it was going to play out. But it's obviously we got our eight first eight guys, and as we develop that, we'll bring more guys in and, and, and get the ladies going. It, it's got to open the thing up. My point is simply this. That would have never happened if we hadn't stayed at Restart and out on the street. You see, we obviously... I had visions when I first started. I get, I'll be honest with you. I had visions when I first started of holding a church service down at Restart, becoming that. But that wasn't God's plan. And when that didn't work out, I didn't quit. I didn't simply say, well, I ain't going to do it anymore. I mean, we have people out on the street that should win the Christ, but you don't hardly ever get them to church. I mean, we've had some that we picked up, and, you know, they come for a while, but they're all transient people. They're all moving through life, with, you know, doing their own thing. I get that. And I know there are people that have said to me, I don't see the value in what you're doing. You know, the value in what I'm doing is the fact that God gave me to do it, and I'm going to be faithful in the little things. And now because we have, look at what God has given us. And it's just that the way it works. And I've always believed that all of my life. I've never cared what anybody thought. Well, I don't know if that's a good idea. Look, if God gave it to me, I really don't care what your idea is about it. I'm going to follow what the Lord gives me because I've been in this verse too many times and seen God if I'm faithful in the little things, make us ruler over many things. And I look at this as an opportunity. It's going to open up incredible. And it all started because of our being faithful in something that God gave us to do. Simply, God blesses faithfulness. Faithfulness to the Word of God. Faithfulness to the ministry. To ministering to the Lord first, like First Acts 13 says. Faithful to the ministry that God has given to us in our church. Faithful to the ministry that God has given us through our church, the things that we do. Faithful to, to, the, to, the, to the families, of our own families that we have. Being faithful to them, as the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, 8. You know, and, and faithful to the, to the people that God has given us. Faithful to, the, to your calling that God has called you to do. And certainly faithful to standing on the book in these last days and preaching the pure word of God. Church of the open door. Taking your stand for the things that are right. The last part of verse 20 says, But he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. Now there's two aspects here. Shall not be innocent. Of course, for the unsaved, that'll be the great white throne judgment. God will deal with them there. For us, it'll be the judgment seat of Christ. God will deal with us there. In either case, we will not be innocent when we have forsaken the faithfulness that God is to us and not been given that back to him. You know, simply put for all of us today, we, we need not to have malice or hatred in our heart. Don't get to the place of the child of God that you can't forgive somebody. It'll end your career with God, I guarantee you. Second thing he says is walk uprightly. That's what we teach the principles here. I know it's not going to be a perfect life. I know you're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes. We're all going to have our down dog days. I get that. Keep short accounts with God and you get back to where God wants you to be. Sow the seed in the hearts of men and then help them cultivate it. And you'll have bread enough forever. And if you want to abound with the blessings of God, stay faithful in those eight things that I just gave you. The Word of God, the ministry to the Lord, the ministry to the church, the ministry through the church, ministry to your family, ministry to the people that God gives you, faithful to your calling that God has called you, and faithful to the preach the Word of God and put it out. If you'll just do those eight things and work on faithfulness and get walk uprightly, you'll have more blessings in your life than you'll know what to deal with. And then you've got to come to the place when you see that through the joy of your fellowship. You know why so many of God's people only focus on a negative thing? Because there's no joy in their life. How in the world can you have the joy of the Lord and the happiness and the contentment of what he's doing and the joy in your life and only see what's negative? Now listen to me. As a Christian, you will never lose your soul. We know the Bible teaches that once you become God's child, you're in for the duration. You cannot lose your salvation. 
We know that. And as a Christian, you will never lose your soul. But listen to me very carefully. Let me tell you what you can lose. You can lose your money. You can lose your business. You can lose your kids. You can lose your wife. You can lose your husband. You can lose your testimony. You can lose your joy. You can lose your being a disciple. You can lose your fellowship. You can lose your assurance. You certainly can lose your inheritance. You can lose your rewards. You can lose your health, and you most certainly can lose your life. Isn't that enough to lose? And I'll tell you something else, dear brethren. You had better not only count the cost of following Christ, and there will be a cost involved in following him. You not only better not only count the cost of following him, but you had better count the cost of not following him. And he closes this section with a great promise. That a faithful man shall abound with blessings. Blessed is the man. In the book of Psalms, it's all about, I think 17 times in that book, he talks about being blessed. Because God wants to bless us. It's us who refuse the blessings of God because we won't walk uprightly. We get our nose bit at a joint. We get our attitude about this or that. And we don't follow the love of Christ in, the, in our lives and the things that we do. And I'm telling you what, it just takes us right to the pit of corruption. A faithful man shall abound with blessings. And I'm telling you right now, you can do whatever you want to do with it. God blesses your faithfulness. You be faithful in the little things. He'll make you ruler over many things. You be faithful in the little things of learning the Bible. He'll make you a ruler within a place where you really understand the Bible. All the bread you can have. Well, we'll hold up there.